We're going to move ahead in our service this morning, and uh, we're beginning a new series today that we're calling Affirmative. And in order to do that, I would like to have us read from the Old Testament book of Esther. This is chapter 4, verses 10 through 16. You can read along with me if you like. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court, without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the time in which we live. Thank you for overseeing so many of the details of life that we have what we need. Despite the snow, despite the change in pace that it creates, this morning when we woke up, we had air to breathe and the sun came out. And there's so many other aspects of living on this planet that you've provided. We're in just the right place and just the right time to enjoy life to enjoy you. Thank you for placing us here in this part of the world where we have freedom to worship and where we have so many freedoms that other countries in the world do not necessarily share. We're grateful for this land. We pray for our leaders, the ones we voted for and the ones we did not vote for. And we ask that you will grant them wisdom and that in the right way and the right time that you will nudge each one and that you will put people in their pathways who will speak truth and give them wise counsel at every level of government. Lord, we pray for our families, whether they are families of one or families of many, and ask that you will give us the ability not only to hold on to our faith, but to model what faith is like when it is lived out through a human being to other people in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces, and in our stores, and wherever we go. Increasingly, give us the ability to speak for you, to speak truth, to be kind, and to be loving. Thank you for giving us that wonderful opportunity overnight on Friday night to show that we really do love our neighbors as we help them with snow. We know that's why you did it, and why you're doing it again tonight. And we pray for the patience that we need to put up with all of the hassles that come with it. Thank you for changing us little by little on the inside as we allow your truth 
to begin to change the way that we think and to guide the way that we live. Help us to do that well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On May 10th in 1940, Nazi Germany invaded Holland and Belgium. It was what most of Europe had been fearing. England's prime minister at the time, his name was Neville Chamberlain, and he resigned that day in shame. Chamberlain had earlier made a deal with Adolf Hitler, promising peace in our time. And after Hitler invaded these other countries, Chamberlain became a laughingstock. At 6 p.m. on that day, King George VI of England summoned Winston Churchill and asked him to form a government. Churchill immediately went to work. This is Churchill's account from the final chapter of his book, The Gathering Storm. He wrote, During the last crowded days of the political crisis, my pulse had not quickened at, at any moment. I took it all as it came. But I cannot conceal from the reader of this truthful account that as I went to bed at about 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. At last, I had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I were, I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams." Unquote. Here's the point of telling you that. There's no doubt that our world is a better place today because Sir Winston Churchill said yes 79 years ago. This morning, we're beginning a new series that we're calling Affirmative. Can you say that word with me? Affirmative? We don't hear that very often. We don't use that in common discourse that much. But uh, you've already been involved with this series simply by giving me that affirming response just a moment ago. Now think of this. Affirmative responses are one of the keys to letting a teacher or a leader know that you understand or that you are with them or that you are on board. And there are a variety of ways that we communicate with affirmative tones. For instance, in the Army, when a platoon of soldiers gives an affirmative response, they call out, Hooah! Can you say that? Hooah! If you were a Marine, you wouldn't say it quite the same way. The appropriate affirmative response for a Marine, a Marine is hoorah. A little different from hoorah. Let's say that. Hoorah. No H on the end. It's just oorah. In the Navy, that affirmative response is hooyah, or perhaps sometimes ii. To really complicate things, Seabees, and I'm told Navy SEALs, due to their close association with the Marines, even though they're in the Navy, say, hoorah. Now, all this helps me understand something that I witnessed week in and week out when I was a kid growing up in church. In the church movement that I was a part of, whenever anybody got excited, the typical affirming response was somebody would shout, amen. And as a Baptist, that happened a whole lot. And I didn't understand, why are these people getting all excited? Why are they shouting in the middle of a church service? But when they wanted to say, I agree with that, I affirm that, that's a truth that I resonate with, they would call out, amen. Now, now we've never really promoted that within our church culture here at North River. Uh, but it, it's a way of saying, I understand, or count me in, or got it. Sometimes a speaker to a group of people will ask a question, and they'll say, get it? 
And your response when they do that is to say, got it, right? Let, let's try that. Get it? Good. All right, we'll come back to that. So let me tell you a little bit about the subtitle for this series. While the official title for the series is affirmative, the, the subtitle is Saying Yes to God. So for the month of March, we're going to go through, uh, we're going to look closely at a handful of biblical characters who responded affirmatively to challenges and opportunities where God enabled them to lead high-impact lives. That said, not all of the people that we will study said yes. We're also going to look at one biblical character who said no to God, and then we're going to see how life got complicated because of that. Why does this matter? It is my conviction, based on years of biblical study and personal observation, that our lives today are deeply impacted by the various callings that God brings our way. And I believe that God calls to all of us in different ways. And the more often we say yes to God, the more our lives become entwined with God's purposes in our time. And the more often we say no to God, the more complicated and difficult our lives become. Does that make sense? So we're going to look today at the biblical character of Esther. Uh, a lot of people will say from time to time, boy, it seems like there are an awful lot of men who make up the focus of the Bible. Uh, are there great women in the Bible too? And the answer is yes, there are a whole bunch of them. And Esther is one of those great female leaders. There's a whole book of the Bible named after her. And we're going to look at lessons on defining moments that come from this example in Esther's life. Three lessons. Here's the first. These moments rise from times of change and urgency. The backdrop are seasons of change and urgency. The first two verses that we read together here in chapter 4 uh, started with verse 10. Then she, Esther, instructed him, a man who was helping in that scene, to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, that's the key phrase there, without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Let me explain what's going on behind here. The biblical account of Esther takes place nearly 2,500 years ago in the ancient kingdom of Persia. A large group of Jewish people had been exiled to Babylon in the days prior to the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes and the Persians eventually conquered the Babylonians. These exiles were led by uh, Nehemiah, who, uh, or, excuse me, 70 years later after that exile started, during the reign of the Persian king Cyrus, the first wave of Israelites began returning to Israel. And so this first wave was led by Nehemiah, who took on the project of rebuilding the walls. So some of you have read the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. It's all about that building process. The second wave of returning Israelites came with Ezra, who rebuilt the religious life in Jerusalem. The story of Esther is often attached to those two books of Nehemiah and Ezra, and it takes place during a 10-year period between the first 
and second waves of returning people to the land of Israel. When Israel was heading into exile, Jeremiah had told them to settle down and to bless the cities where they would live. They were expected to build homes, to give their children in, in marriage, to take up jobs, and to make the most of life in Babylon. They were also told to pray for God's blessing on the city because if God blessed Babylon and the Babylonian people, then he would bless the Jews along with it. And they would flourish too. Their challenge was to keep their moral and spiritual distinctiveness while embracing their new home in every possible way without losing that spiritual distinctiveness. Now, years later, in the Medo-Persian Empire, Esther had risen from obscurity to become the new queen of the land. An unthinkable thought. Here was one of these exiled Jewish people who rises all the way to becoming the queen of the Persian Empire. How did that happen? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. The king's name was Xerxes, and Xerxes had banished the previous queen, Vashti, because she refused a demeaning order from the king. Here's the way that it works. Ladies, see if you would like this. After a massive drinking binge with his friends, Xerxes decided that he wanted Vashti to show off her beauty in front of all of his drunken friends. When she refused, she was banished. How many of you would want to go along with that? Have a little beauty show in front of all the king's drunken friends. I, I didn't think you know, there were any takers in the first service either. <laughs> However, Esther, whose Jewish name was Hadassah, kept her ethnic identity secret as the king led a nationwide beauty contest to choose a new queen. And out of all the people in the land, out of all the women in the land, Esther was chosen as that new queen. Then there was another scene that happened where one of the most powerful nobles in the kingdom devised a plan to do away with all the Jews. This man's name was Haman. And the king had chosen to honor Haman above all the other friends and nobles that he had in the kingdom. Haman, we're told here in an earlier chapter, was an Agagite, which means that he was a descendant of the Amalekite king known as Agag. Wars between Israel and the Amalekites had gone back all the way to the days of King Saul and to King David, and even further back to the days of the leadership of Moses. And it seems that Haman had held on to and carried this family-born hatred toward the Jewish people that was literally hundreds of years old. And when he finally came into a position of prominence, he convinced King Xerxes to sign a law setting aside one particular day where it would be legal to annihilate the Jewish people in the Persian kingdom. Esther's uncle Mordecai discovered this plot and he went to Esther and he urged her to use her position in order to appeal to the king on behalf of not only herself, but all of the Jewish people in the Persian kingdom. There was one major problem with his plan. And it was the rule that anyone who would approach the king uninvited when he was in his courtroom chambers was subject to the death penalty. The one exception was if the king took his scepter and he extended it toward that person, it meant he would grant them a hearing and probably whatever it was that they wished. And Esther had no way of knowing 
how this Persian king, Xerxes, would respond. When Esther's uncle Mordecai discovered this plot, he urged Esther to go ahead anyway and appeal to the king. And so Esther was being asked to risk her life in order to appeal for the lives of her people. Do you see that sense of urgency here? It was a time of sweeping change. There was a new person in power right next to the throne in Haman. And Haman wanted to bring his old hatred, his family's hatred, against the Jewish people. But there was a sense of urgency because the Jews in the capital city of, of Susa would be killed if she kept silent and if she did nothing. And so she was risking her life to go before the king and plead on their behalf. Now, with that in mind, consider what Churchill wrote on the night when he was made prime minister. Part of the quote that I read for you earlier was when he said, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. What he was saying was, in that time of change and urgency, everything came together and I could see why I was placed where I was placed. I believe there are defining moments that God has planned for each of our lives. These defining moments are different for each one of us. Some of us have more than one. And this was Esther's defining moment. That defining moment always comes when we step up and we say yes to God. Get it? Good. All right. A few of you got it. I see you're a little sleep on that. We'll do that again later. So the first idea is these moments rise from times of change and urgency. Here's the second lesson from Esther. Godly reflection leads to purpose. Godly reflection on what he is doing leads to an understanding of this sense of purpose that he gives. And Esther became filled with this sense of God's purpose. So we have to ask the question, how did that happen? The next three verses come into play here. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther had pointed out the risk in her comments to Mordecai, the risk of going before the king. Mordecai was Esther's uncle. What uh, the early part, earlier part of the book shows is that Esther was an orphan. Both of her parents had died, and her uncle, Mordecai, had stepped in to provide direction in her life. He was older, wiser. He'd become her mentor. When he urged Esther to go to the king, she could respond to him very easily in saying, there's a problem here. You don't understand. If I just go uninvited, I'm risking my own neck. But now Mordecai makes sure that Esther understands the entire scenario. In other words, he wants to make sure she sees the whole picture, not just one narrow part of it. Her position in the king's palace doesn't mean that she is safe while all the other Jewish people are at risk. Mordecai is convinced that the Lord will protect his people. Where does that come from? Perhaps he was aware of Jeremiah's prophecy 
Now, many people who love the Old Testament are familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11. That's the place where God said to the people of Israel as they were going into this exile period, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. He'd spoken that specifically to this group of people. And so old Mordecai is applying that old prophecy from Jeremiah, and he's saying, I know that even if you say nothing, even if you do nothing in this time, God is going to provide a deliverer. But Esther, beware. If God provides a deliverer and you don't step forward in this time, it will come from some other place. And because you're part of the king's household, you are likely to be swept up in whatever happens and you will be at risk. He is not saying that somebody's going to harm her family. He, what he's recognizing is she's the last of the line in her immediate family. Her parents are gone and she's the only one left. And what he's saying is your name and your family's name will be rubbed out and forgotten if you don't step forward because your life will be at risk. Does that make sense? Finally, Mordecai states the most memorable line of this wonderful Old Testament book. He asks the question, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Every once in a while in political speeches or debates or in a history book, you'll find that line, for such a time as this. It comes right from the Bible. It comes right from, from Mordecai's question to Queen Esther. And it has in there the idea that God puts people in places where he wants them to be. Mordecai, in other words, could see what Esther had not figured out yet. That her position was lining up with the way that God was working behind the scenes and he was bringing about his purpose. How does an orphaned Jewish girl in an anti-Semitic community all of a sudden become the queen of the whole empire? Is that by accident? Probably not. How does it happen? She has to be placed there. Some of you remember the name of Alan Emery. Alan lived years ago in East Weymouth, and he had a house on the tallest hill in East Weymouth that was a replica of George Washington's Mount Vernon. And for some 40 years, Alan uh, had a Bible club that met in that. And so when I was a high schooler, I went to that Bible club every Thursday night. Alan wrote a book years ago that was called Turtle on a, Pence, on a Fence Post. And the cover of the book has this interesting picture of this big old fence post, and then there's a big fat turtle. You know turtles, they've got the round hard shell and these flat tummies and these tiny little legs, right? And the question that is begged by the picture is, how does a turtle get on a fence post? What's the answer? Somebody had to put it there. And he, he used that as the title of his book that told stories about his life in saying, that's who I am. I'm realizing that I've lived a life of great privilege because God has put me in a place I didn't do anything to get there, but I have a responsibility once I am there. Alan was an interesting guy. 
He, he went to Wheaton College in Illinois when he was 18 years old as a freshman and uh, only did one year of college because his dad ran an international wool business and his dad called him after that, that first year and said, I need you to come help me in the business. Things are changing rapidly and, and I want you to do that. And so he worked in his dad's business. And in the, in the intervening years, World War II broke out and he never got to finish college. But that one year that he spent in college, he had this uh, skinny young roommate, a kid from North Carolina, who became very well known. His name was Billy Graham. And when Billy Graham started his evangelistic campaigns after the war, he needed financial advice. And the smartest guy from his era that he knew, who had a great business head, was this old roommate from his first year, Alan Emery, who'd been working in his dad's wool business in, in, the, in Boston. And so he called Alan, and Alan became the unpaid president of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, a role that he held for about 45 years, never took a dime, but ran the whole, whole uh, institution, the whole association. He saw himself as a turtle on a fence post whom God had placed where he was in order to help his friend and then in order to have an international influence. And literally, there were hundreds of thousands of people who came to faith in Jesus Christ because of the pairing of these two men, one who was very prominent, one who was little known in those circles, turtle on a fence post in order to resource his friend. Heroes are people who say yes to God in pivotal moments. Erwin McManus is an unusual pastor in Los Angeles, and he talks about this concept in his book, Seizing Your Divine Moment. He asks this question, what if you knew somewhere in front of you was a moment that would change your life forever? A moment rich with potential, a moment filled with endless possibilities. What if you knew there was a moment coming, a divine moment, one where God would meet you in such a way that nothing would ever be the same again? What if you knew there was a moment coming, a divine moment, a defining moment, where the choices you made determined the course and momentum of part of the future? How would you treat that moment, he asks. How would you prepare for it? How would you identify it? A little while later, in the same paragraph, he says, you rarely know the eternal significance of a moment. Yet the only moment that you must take responsibility for right now is the one in front of you. The moment you are in right now waits to be seized. Esther seized her moment by taking advantage of what God had put before her. From Mordecai's question, she knew that her royal position was not just an accidental triumph in a beauty contest. It was a defining moment orchestrated by God for his people. And Esther answered with an affirmative. She said yes to God. This happens in a variety of other ways when people say yes to something that is big and bold. 39 years ago, Herb Brooks coached the United States Olympic hockey team, and the goal they set before them was to win the gold medal against the feared Soviet Union, the Russian hockey team. Remember that? In 1980? And we were all standing there stunned as the whole country watched them defeat the Russians and then go on in the final game to win the gold medal. 
After the Olympics were over, Herb Brooks wrote this. Great moments are born from great opportunities. Great moments are born from great opportunities. And that's where Esther found herself. She was afraid at first, but once that clarity came to her mind, presented by her uncle, she realized this was one of those great opportunities. Afraid or not, she had to step forward. Get it? Now you do. Good. Yeah. Question. Any chance that God has been tapping you on the shoulder in regard to some next step in your life? Something that he wants you to take on? Some step that he wants you to take next? Perhaps it is time for you to seize that moment. And on the other side of that decision is where God blesses you most richly. These moments rise from times of change and urgency. Godly reflection leads to a sense of purpose. Here's the third lesson from Esther. Your moment when it comes calls for boldness. So we finish out the last two verses of this paragraph. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And then she finishes up. She says, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Notice that Esther didn't just run headlong into this risky scenario. She had a plan. And Esther's plan was built on three ingredients. First was the combination of prayer and fasting. The second was a sense of knowing God's timing. And the third had to do with the courage that comes from boldness. Let me break that down. First, we look at prayer and fasting. In the Bible, fasting is always tied to prayer. It's never just a great weight loss strategy. <laughs> in other words, people were forgoing food and food preparation in order to prioritize and spend that time in urgent prayer toward God. There are a number of scenarios where we see this happen. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before he was tempted by Satan and sort of launches his public ministry. Paul and Barnabas prayed and fasted before appointing church elders. We read about that in Acts chapter 14. Cornelius, the God-fearing Italian centurion, fasted for four days before Peter was sent to present the gospel to him. Right after that, he and his entire household not only received the gospel, they were baptized the next day. David fasted after hearing that Jonathan and Saul had died in battle and before stepping in as the next king of the southern part of Israel, of Judah. We find fasting shows up actually quite a bit in the Old Testament. But prayer was tied to it. Esther also had this sense of timing that was connected to her defining moment. First, she recognized that she'd been given a key spot in the right place at the right time. But then she called for this three-day fast. She wasn't going to just rush headlong in and barge her way in to see the king. She wanted prayer support. That's the reason for the, past, the fasting. So she had Mordecai gather all the Jewish people he could find, tell them what was going on, tell them their lives were at stake, have them get on their knees before God and not eat or drink for three days. 
And she and her attendants were going to do the same thing. This is great leadership that Esther is providing. Spiritual leadership. And finally, we see Esther's courage and boldness. She says, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I die, then I just die. This is the language of abandonment to a cause. You know what she was saying? I'm in. She's saying, amen. She's saying, hoorah. Yes, God, more than anything. Yes, God. This is the place where you've put me, and I will step forward. Billy Graham once wrote, courage is contagious. When a brave man or a brave woman takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. I love that image. So it has the idea that one person of courage taking a stand, and next to them are people just kind of slouching or they're in fear, and their backbone stiffens because of the courage of someone else. Isn't that a great image? One person's courage stiffens the backs of a whole lot of other people. So here's the big idea for this morning. We'll wrap it all up with this. Your defining moment of life comes when God leads you to step out with prayer-soaked boldness. We're coining that phrase here this morning, prayer-soaked boldness. That's what God calls for. When he's tapping you on the shoulder, when he's giving you a dream, when you see a problem that needs a solution and you realize that you have the capability to at least step into the gap or build a team that can do it together, it calls for prayer-soaked boldness. And so I want to ask this question. Is it possible God is leading you to step out in a new way? My hope that is that every time that God taps you on the shoulder, you and I will develop this habit of saying yes to God, affirmative, hua, I'm in. Let me wrap this up with this short video. I want you to watch this. It kind of pulls this together. It's our time. We must rise up and no longer disparage. It's our time, church, to honor our heritage. We have a savior. He gave it all on the cross. We stand beside martyrs who counted nothing as loss. They took God's mysteries, opened them up for us. Stephen, John the Baptist, Bonhoeffer, Jan Hus. Surrounded by a cloud of witnesses above, it's now our turn to model his unending love. Our mission is one we cannot confuse, nor muddy up with some trite excuse. You say you're not well-versed, ready, or able. I think Moses even tried to use that fable. The time we have, it's now more urgent. If we should hear, well done, faithful servant. Yeah, church, it's our time. It's our time to confess the ways we're mangled, the sins and selfishness that have us entangled. Lust, greed, and pride, their path leads to the grave. Yet we return to our sins as if we're a slave. Can we survive in this putrid dead sea? I quote Paul, may it never be. 
So let's cast aside our individual leprosy and begin to leave a biblical legacy. There's a glorious prize awaiting to be won, and the way to win is to start to run. Let's lace them up and fight the good fight, become to the world both salt and light. Our life on earth is merely a vapor. Our chapter must move from pen to paper. So church, let's get to writing because it's our time. It's our time, church. We have what it takes to help the world from its slumber awake. To Jesus, we are his beautiful bride. Whom shall we fear with him on our side? We have each other. We are not alone. It's iron to iron in the combat zone. There's a promise of life full of adventure. As long as we give both talents and treasure, the workers are few, the harvest is plenty, with so many lives running on empty. Scores of people trying to cope. They've come to the end of their proverbial rope. Young eyes are wandering, looking for direction. Make sure we point them to his resurrection. The clock's ticking, we're on our dime. Hey church, rise up! It's our time. It's our time. Get it? Good. Father God, thank you for allowing us to have a little bit of fun in the way that we think about sending affirmative messages to your calls. Lord, I believe that there are defining moments in each of our lives, and to be ready for those defining moments, we need to train ourselves now with little things by saying yes, when you nudge, when you whisper, when you tap us on the shoulder, when the opportunity is staring us in the face, help us to seize the moments of our times and look for your blessing on the other side. Thank you for this challenge from Esther, this great woman of God from 2,500 years ago, who, whose lessons equip us to live well today. It's in Jesus' name that we thank you, that we worship you, that we give to you, and that we go back into our world that needs to see grace in action. Amen. Let me invite our ushers to come, and we'll have an opportunity to give our offerings and our, our gifts to the Lord. Uh, thanks for being here today. This is going to be a great series for the next month. Todd is going to take part two of this next week. And right now we're going to sing uh, one more song that is a reminder that our God is mighty to save, not only in Esther's day, but ours too. <laughs>